3: If the president of the United States doesn't believe what his intelligence services are telling him, you might as well not have an intelligence service.
0: Today we have a special episode of War College. Our regular host, Matthew Galt, is handing the mic over this week to Reuters' Helen Koster and Arshad Mohammed. They'll be speaking to National Book Award winner and regular commentary contributor Tim Weiner on the U.S. intelligence community and its relationship with President Donald Trump.
2: You're listening to Reuters War College, a discussion of the world in conflict, focusing on the stories behind the front lines.
1: Hello, and welcome to the War College podcast. I'm Helen Koster, senior editor of the commentary section of
2: Reuters. And I'm Marshad Mohammed, Washington-based diplomatic correspondent for Reuters.
1: We're joined today by Tim Weiner, who has covered intelligence and espionage for 30 years. He's the author of five books, including Legacy of Ashes, His History of the CIA, which won the National Book Award. His journalism on secret government programs received the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting. He's also a frequent contributor to the commentary section of Reuters. Tim, thanks for being with us today.
3: You're more than welcome.
1: So let's start with a question about Donald Trump. The president has done something unusual for an American president. Even before he took office, he was denigrating the U.S. intelligence community. Can you describe for us the root cause of that tension and how it has played out so far?
3: Yes, uh, President Trump is certainly the only chief executive of the United States who came to office comparing the CIA to Nazis. On his first full day in office, he went to CIA headquarters outside of Washington, D.C. and gave a remarkable rambling campaign speech, which was a kind of a public insult to the members of the CIA present and to the intelligence community in general. The president and his chief advisor and spiritual guide, Steve Bannon apparently feel that there is something called a deep state within the intelligence community, which is trying to undermine them. This is not a good foot on which to get off as the president of the United States in a state of war with your own intelligence community. So,
2: Tim, um, it seems like what you're talking about here is partly a question of trust and the lack of mutual trust between uh, the president and the intelligence community. What are the dangers of there not being trust between the person who sits in the Oval Office and the U.S. intelligence agencies?
3: They are profound. The intelligence business is based on trust. You have to trust your fellow Americans when you are working at CIA or FBI, because when you are working overseas trying to work with foreign agents and get Russians or Chinese or people from other countries to commit treason and work for the United States as spies, you have to use a calculated combination of lies and truth in order to suborn them. When you're back in Washington and dealing with your fellow Americans, you have to tell the truth to one another or the entire business goes sideways. An intelligence officer, a CIA officer, an FBI agent, In Washington has to have a moral gyroscope to stay straight. If the president thinks you're lying, if the president puts the word intelligence in ironic air quotes when he tweets or when his spokesman speaks, we're in trouble. Do you think
2: that there is a chance that the US intelligence community will try to hurt the president uh, for example, by disclosing or otherwise using uh, information that they have that might be damaging to him? Is there is there any reason to think that the trust has deteriorated to such a degree in almost two months uh, that they might actually be trying to subvert him?
3: No, we're getting into Hollywood territory there. I don't believe that we have a deep state. I agree with David Remnick of The New Yorker who wrote... We don't have a deep state. We have a shallow president.
1: And Tim, one bit of fallout from this tense relationship is certainly the magnitude of leaks that have been coming out of the intelligence community. You've written for us about Trump's response to those leaks and your thoughts on whether or not it's a good approach. Could you speak about that a little bit?
3: I have a very narrow definition of what a leak is. A leak is the unauthorized disclosure of classified information. That is a phrase written into law. Um, Leaks, as we generally define them, are the free flow of information in a democratic society, I think. And uh, leaks become a torrent when the machinery of government is clashing and breaking down, when there is friction. Pipes break and information leaks. That's how the machinery of government works when it's not working. And the more conflict there is, at the top of the government, the wider and richer the flow of leaks.
1: And the Trump White House's approach to these leaks so far has been what? How would you characterize it?
3: Admit nothing, deny everything, and make counter-allegations.
2: Tim, there's, there's something I've never understood about the way in which the U.S. Uh, intelligence community works. Um, I printed out a list of all the former directors of central intelligence uh, and then their successors, the directors of national intelligence. And for much of uh, the history of uh, the modern history of the American intelligence community, the heads of the community have come and gone, have sort of been blown by political winds. Not always the case, of course. Uh, Alan Dulles uh, stayed on from Eisenhower to Kennedy, at least for a while. But why is it that in the American system there is this tradition, for the most part, of the president getting to pick his own director of intelligence? Why shouldn't it be a more impartial, professional role and be less uh, subject to, to political choice? That is a
3: very good question. At the FBI, after J. Edgar Hoover died in 1972, Congress gradually determined that there should be a 10-year term for the FBI director where he could only be fired for cause by the president. Uh, we might do well to think of uh, intelligence as above politics. It should be above politics. And perhaps the CIA director or the director of national intelligence or both should be appointed and confirmed by Congress to 10-year terms so they are not buffeted by the political winds. And tell us a little bit about how that worked out,
2: if you would, in the case of John F. Kennedy and Alan Dulles. What brought Dulles uh, down? How successful was his successor, John McCone? Does that suggest anything about the usefulness of keeping, keeping somebody on from the previous administration?
3: Well, Alan Dulles was the brother of John Foster Dulles, who was the Secretary of State under Eisenhower. And the Dulles brothers, one running state, one running CIA, were a formidable team. They could make American foreign policy on Sunday afternoons around their sister Eleanor's swimming pool and decide uh, what it was and execute it, sometimes with uh, President Eisenhower's knowledge and sometimes not. This system came a cropper after John Foster Dulles died, Allen was alone, and the CIA planned and executed the Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba in early 1961, just a few weeks after President John Kennedy had taken office. The Bay of Pigs is synonymous with intelligence failure. It was royally screwed up, if I may use a technical term. Many people died, the invasion failed, and Castro's position as a hero for defeating the mighty United States was cemented for the next 50 years. After the Bay of Pigs, President Kennedy said he wanted to break up the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the four winds. Instead, he broke Alan Dulles, fired him, and appointed a conservative millionaire Republican shipbuilding businessman named John McCone as the head of the CIA. Now McCone had been secretary of the Air Force a decade earlier and he knew a thing or two about ships and planes and when the Cuban Missile Crisis came a year later in the fall of 1962 McCain had the bright idea of using ships to blockade and quarantine Cuba so that uh, Soviet vessels carrying nuclear weapons components couldn't reach the island. Good idea! It worked, and it saved the world from uh, World War III. Um, Every president has the right to choose his own CIA director. However, there are very, very few people in the United States qualified to do that job. They have to know how intelligence works. It's a very complicated business it is also especially after 9 11 a difficult dirty dangerous deadly business and people are going to get killed our people and their people so you want somebody in that job who understands how the machine works and not a political appointee who looks good on camera and may have sat on a congressional committee overseeing the cia but doesn't know how the machinery works. The clandestine service of the CIA, the people who do things overseas, the operators, as opposed to the analysts who sit in suburban Virginia and think about things, they don't like outsiders. And you can understand why. It's a tribal community. They speak their own language. They feel that only they understand one another. And to that part of the CIA, Almost everyone is an outsider.
1: And Tim, beyond obviously the enormous role of being able to select a CIA director, can you speak a little bit about the power that the U.S. president has over the intelligence communities? And because we're in a podcast right now discussing war and the military, can you speak specifically about operationally? So what kind of power does the president have over his community as they conduct their affairs overseas in particular?
3: The CIA belongs to the president. It is upon his order that they do things overseas. When a major covert operation is launched, the president is required to sign a piece of paper called a finding in which he says, I, the president of the United States, find that this operation is crucial to the national security of the United States. That is a modern invention created nearly 40 years ago to prevent the President from using the CIA as a secret weapon. He has to sign on the dotted line. And these findings, as they're called, uh, are supposed to be shared with Congress. Well, usually they are, but on occasion they're not. They're hidden, they're backdated. That happened under President Reagan, infamously. So there is a fail-safe mechanism whereby the Congress, uh, can be informed not only of the crash landings of a covert operation, but of the takeoff. Here's a cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact,
1: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United UnitedHealthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig.
2: Could you talk a little bit about the uh, the Iran-Contra issue and, and the retroactive finding that President Reagan uh, signed? Does that, to you, illustrate the dangers of having your own person as the CIA director, in that case, Bill Casey? Might that not have happened if it had not been a hand-picked sort of political operative who, in fact, had run Reagan's campaign and therefore might be more inclined to do the president's bidding?
3: Well, as usual, you put your finger on it. Less than 10 years after this system of findings was created, it was broken. President Reagan and his closest national security advisors, in their wisdom, decided to sell millions of dollars worth of lethal weaponry to the Iranian National Guard, overcharge them 600%, skim the profits, and backhand the money to anti-communist rebels in Central America, Congress had cut off funding for the Central American rebels. And it was probably a bad idea to send uh, anti-tank weapons to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, even though at the time they were killing uh, Iraqi soldiers in the Iran-Iraq War. It violated not only the laws of the United States, but probably the laws of God and man to conduct such a deal, and of course they knew it was illegal. They knew it was wrong, they did it in secret, and the findings that were crucial to this operation, like let's put a bunch of missiles on an airplane and ship them to Iran, were falsified and backdated. The president could have been impeached for this, he wasn't in the event, but the key members of his national security team were indicted and then in the end, Christmas week in 1992, pardoned by the outgoing president. President Bush 41.
2: We've been talking for a while about Donald Trump and and the intelligence community, but we haven't yet spoken about Russia. How much of the apparent animus between President Trump and the intelligence community do you think has to do with what the U.S. intelligence agencies found or concluded about Russian efforts to influence the U.S. election? And how much on the president's side do you think his criticism of the agencies may be an effort to defend the integrity of his uh, his victory
3: as to the first question i would say more than 50 percent the animus and possibly something approaching 99.4 percent of Mm. the animus that the president feels toward the intelligence community flows from their unanimous conclusion that the kremlin threw a no-look pass at the trump campaign and got an assist in his victory There is no question whatsoever in the mind of every one of the 17 uh, American intelligence agencies, not to mention the British intelligence services and the German intelligence service, that Vladimir Putin is on a global campaign to undermine Western democracies from the western edge of Russia to the west coast of the United States and that is a very serious matter Hmm. there came a time during 2016 where the disruption of the American democratic system and the election of Donald Trump became one goal two missions one goal what could be more disruptive of the American political system than the election of Donald Trump So the Kremlin got a twofer. And that mission is accomplished. That's over. That's done. He won.
2: The intelligence document that was produced regarding the uh, Russian efforts to influence the election campaign, if I'm not mistaken, concluded that there was no actual tampering in the voting and so on uh, that took place uh, in November of last year.
3: They weren't stuffing ballot boxes, they were playing with people's minds. That's a different issue. What we had here was a 21st century hybrid warfare campaign that involved propaganda, that's an old-fashioned term for fake news, cyber warfare, and covert influence operations that was designed to undermine the Democratic candidate, and support her opponents. And I'm using the word opponents multiply for a reason.
1: I was thinking too, Tim, about Trump's position on enhanced interrogation, um, talk that he's preparing an executive order that would clear the way for the CAA to reopen black site prisons and so forth, things that are a real departure from Obama. Do you think that that's in the cards now um, through Trump's view of the world and and the US intelligence community's role in it.
3: It depends on who's executing that order. If the CIA is called upon to reinstitute torture, to reinstitute black sites, to reinstitute waterboarding, it probably helps that cause that the number 2 person just named at CIA was in charge of those kinds of operations for many years after 9-11, and she has a reputation for uh, not only supporting torture, waterboarding, enhanced interrogation, which is an Orwellian euphemism, but participating in them. So if the CIA gets an execute order to do that, they might well carry it out. If the Pentagon gets an order to do that, General Mattis has indicated that he's not down for that, And we get into a situation where if a military officer is ordered to do something that he thinks is illegal, unconstitutional, or immoral, he or she can throw down his stars and say, Mr. President, I resign on principle.
2: One thing I wanted to ask you about to take you back to where you started uh, with President Trump's first full day in office and his speech at the CIA. In your account and and according to intelligence officials that my colleagues and I have spoken to, the appearance didn't go down well at all. And I wonder if you think the animosity between the intelligence community and and the president is likely to lead to more retirements of senior officers, mid-level officers looking to make more money in the private sector, which they, they can, of course, do. And and might actually deter younger Americans from joining the intelligence community, because what's the point of becoming an intelligence operative or analyst if your work uh, isn't being read by the president every morning?
3: That is a very good point, a very salient point. Uh, it has precedents in our recent past, and it reminds me of something that the director of central intelligence under Presidents Johnson and Nixon Richard Helms once said, he said, if we are not believed, we have no purpose. If the President of the United States doesn't believe what his intelligence services are telling him, you might as well not have an intelligence service. You have to have one. If you are, like we are, a superpower projecting its power beyond its borders and around the world, you have to have the best intelligence to give the president foresight. Not just what just happened, but what does it mean? And what might happen next? And if the president doesn't want to hear that, he is deliberately breaking his sword and renouncing the use of power that intelligence gives you. Information is power. Secret intelligence is powered squared. And secret intelligence that you and only you can deliver to the president is power cubed. And if the president doesn't wanna hear it, the result is a diminution of American power and American freedom to act in the world.
1: So Tim, what happens when the president elect gets his first really serious intelligence briefing before taking office?
3: Generally, his mind is blown, and he emerges goggle-eyed and with some trepidations about what lies ahead. President John Kennedy realized he was going to have to deal not with Vietnam only, not with Laos only, but with Cuba. And three months later came the Bay of Pigs invasion. When President-elect Carter was briefed by the outgoing CIA director George H.W. Bush, he was told, listen, there's, you want to know a few things. For example, the King of Jordan is on our payroll. And Carter being a moralistic man said, what? When the briefers from the CIA, who were then joined by President Obama, told President Trump that he better keep a very close eye on North Korea He clearly emerged both impressed and somewhat goggle-eyed. He thought healthcare policy was complicated? Try North Korea. Okay, these are existential threats to our country and no one gets an operating manual on how to be president and how to handle an existential crisis. You have to have your own team, you have to have your faith in your intelligence and you've got to start making contingency plans for what could go wrong if. And that is a terrifying responsibility because the fate of the nation is in your hands.
1: Trump has generals running the NSC, the Pentagon and Homeland Security. These are positions that have historically been filled by civilians. What might that do to his foreign policy?
3: Military personnel are used to formal chains of command in which decision-making goes up the chain, decisions are made, and the execution orders go down the chain of command. We have more of a chaos presidency in which orders get tweeted out in the early hours of the morning uh, and decisions are made on the fly. We have had now two months of political crises tweeted crises, televised crises, but we have not had a genuine foreign policy crisis that is a life and death existential decision. We have a policy-making machinery in which crucial cogs, that is positions of power, remain unfilled. God help us if in weeks or even months to come we have a genuine crisis that will require full dress meetings of the cabinet and decision-making coming out of the Oval Office, the National Security Council, and decisions to be made by the Pentagon and the American intelligence community. Military officers are sworn to uphold the Constitution. They serve the country. If they are told to do something illegal or unconstitutional, They are duty-bound to throw down their stars. And there may come a moment in months and years to come where there will be a constitutional confrontation between the desires of the president and the duties of the uniformed military and the intelligence community.
1: I'd like to thank our guest, Tim Weiner, author of Legacy of Ashes, History of the CIA, and a longtime reporter on intelligence and espionage for being here today. I'd also like to thank our co-host, Arshad Mohammed, Washington-based diplomatic correspondent for Reuters.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode. War College was created by Jason Fields and Craig Hedick. Matthew Galt usually hosts the show. He'll be back next week. Thank you to our guest host this week. And it's produced by me, Bethel Hoptay. If you like the show and want to support us, please leave us a rating, preferably a five-star rating, on iTunes and a review. Here's a quote from one from Stanley K. Quote, I hope it runs for years and years. Thanks for your kind words, sir. You can leave us feedback on our Twitter page. We're at war underscore college. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks.